Welcome to the Latin Tutor Podcast. If your child is struggling in Latin, then look no further. My name is Emma Williams, and I'm here with practical tips and strategies to help you to help your child. Or maybe you're a teacher, wondering about the best approaches to the trickiest concepts in this unforgiving subject. With my 21 years as a teacher of Latin, as well as a private tutor, I've got a lot of experience to share with you. So if you're ready, incipiamus, let's begin. So you are director of the Cambridge Schools Classics Project, which I always think is one of the hardest things to say out loud. It's one of the hardest <laughs> things to do out loud. I mean. uh, is it? Do tell. <laughs> Caroline Bristow is the current director of the CSCP the aim of which is to support and promote the teaching of Latin across the UK and beyond. Caroline took over the role at what she describes as a point of crisis for the project and is ultimately responsible for the creation of the much-anticipated fifth edition of the Cambridge Latin course, volume one of which is already available, volume two pending in the new year. Interestingly, Caroline paints herself as a reluctant Latinist and states that her appointment to the role was somewhat controversial. I caught up with her to find out more about the project's plans for the fifth edition and to ask just why it is that the CLC holds such an enduring place in the history of our subject. Love it or hate it, you can't ignore the CLC. So, background-wise, I was a first gen uni my well, first gen sixth form I think I don't think any of my parents went to sixth form I didn't know what classics was I had a very good classics teacher at school well sort of a classics teacher she's my RS teacher but she was a classicist and she as so often happens got classic put on as an A level in my sixth form college in the evenings she basically was just like you're a classicist and so I sat this A-level in class with her as an evening class and thought, oh, maybe I am. And then I don't think of myself as being very good with languages. And so when I was a 16-year-old, I ran away screaming because I talked to people about doing Latin and Greek at university, having had no experience of them in the school system at all, and couldn't face it and was terrified, absolutely petrified. I was quite an anxious kid. And so I did ancient and modern history at Oxford and then discovered I did want to be a classicist whilst doing history. I had an amazing tutor called Peter Hara, who basically taught me Greek a little bit in his spare time. So my languages are self, pretty much self-taught. Peter did scaffold my Greek, but it was very much, I, I had to do a lot of it myself. And then I did a postgrad in ancient history. And then my health went to pieces and I couldn't do my PhD. So I went into teaching as a way to get my health back, which I'm not entirely certain that's the way around most people do it. But yeah, I then I left teaching. I worked at OCR. I led on classical subjects, but also religious studies. And then I came into CSCP. Um, I think I was a bit of a controversial hire. I am really open about the fact I'm not the strongest Latinist. There are people on my team who are much stronger Latinists than me. I, I was the kid who didn't do classics because it wasn't for me and I was scared of languages. I understand viscerally what it feels like to move through the classical world as one of the people who doesn't quite feel like they're there. So uh, is that where you see the role of the CLC then as a way of getting 
more reluctant linguists into Latin. Yeah, in many ways. I think, and I think that's something that came from the original remit of the CLC. I mean, yes, they were tackling a very specific context in the late 60s, early 70s around Latin no longer having a, a raison d'etre, essentially, in schools. You know, previously it had been you do Latin so that you can do other things which were completely unrelated to classics. That idea of classics as a thing you had to do at a low level in order to access anything at Oxbridge at a higher level, I find that so weird. It is bizarre, isn't it? When it's you think so about bizarre, it. isn't it? <laughs> you think about it, it's like, oh, yes, if you wanted to read chemistry at Oxford. Must do your Latin and Greek. Must do your Latin and Greek. <laughs> Why? That's madness. Yeah. Um, absolutely mad. I read Martin Forrest's book about CSCP and I was really struck by the way he articulated it. He said that the problem was that this meant that everyone had just kind of left Latin on the curriculum and never really thought about why they were doing it. Because it was a self-evident fact that you did Latin, not because you did Latin because there was no need for the because. And so actually with what the crisis was is the late 60s, early 70s, in many ways with this idea of of an existential crisis of you do Latin because and nobody had the answer ready no everyone just went oh tacitus <laughs> maybe some tacitus, tacitus? <laughs> not a good enough reason try again oh, no no it's no, really not sorry tacitus fans i'm also not a virgil fan which i know might make me get me excommunicated oh, sorry, um, i'll cut that bit out what i was really struck by when i started working with the clc a bit more in depth was the fact that i wasn't scared of it And as someone who spent their entire professional career being slightly off put by people who are better at our subject than I am, I actually found it really striking that when I worked with the CLC or I spoke to people who did, I found it less alienating. And that was something that really resonated with me in terms of what I want a classroom to feel like. You know, I've got a thousand and one anxieties and neuroses around my my place in classics and education and if the CLC could manage to not trigger any of mine it's gone a pretty good bet to not trigger those of a student it's really interesting I actually weirdly best way to be converted to the reading method I found is when I took this job I noticed my Latin got better essentially because I was reading the CLC so much or I was working with it or you know I was having to look at things that were taken from it my fluency improved and all Mm. I was doing essentially was reading to put the other side of the the argument uh, for a moment you of course were coming to it having already been taught Latin or, or taught yourself Latin via some more traditional methods presumably and then you started reading the CLC from the beginning, presumably, which would have been very simple. Yeah, I mean, dipping in and out, essentially. Mm. To an extent, yeah. My Latin wasn't really taught formally. No, I didn't really learn it traditionally. I learned it largely because I, when I needed to access things. So yeah, I am a very, this is why my Latin's bad. My Latin is not (laughs) great. I'm very bad at conjugating or declining things off rote. If you give me a passage, I can read it. And if you stop me and say, I don't know, what verb is that noun kind of attached to or what's its relationship to that? I can tell you. But if you ask me to just, OK, and now decline that, decline that. I'm, ah, 
no it's almost i think it's panic my brain just won't pull it forwards so yeah it, it, it's almost like my brain just works through it differently nobody's ever hiring me as an a-level latin teacher and i am really comfortable with that i have other strengths as a as a practitioner and as a classicist i didn't ever learn to chant the cases in latin or what i learned was almost oh it's 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 doing this and when it's doing that it's that's what it looks like so yeah i'm possibly referencing across to greek mm-hmm. so I, i'm knowing that the, the nominative um and the accusative for example there's possibly that there's a table in greek at the back of my mind somewhere that's kind of spitting itself forwards but i'm not doing it consciously it's really hard to unpick your own language learning isn't it <laughs> i'm trying to work out how my brain does it because i've never really stopped and thought about it I must sound like I just can't do it. You're listening to the Latin Tutor Podcast. Stay tuned to hear more from Caroline Bristow. If you'd like to find out more about her and the CSCP, then you can go to their website, which is cambridgescp.com. If you'd like to get in touch with me, my website is latintutoring.co.uk. Now, as our discussion moves on, Caroline provides some fantastic insights into the thinking behind the language and the stories in the Cambridge Latin course. I have to say, the fifth edition truly sounds like a momentous achievement. So let's hear more. For me, when I discovered that there were people actually thinking about how to teach language which didn't involve spitting conjugations, it was a relief because I suddenly didn't feel rubbish anymore. I, you know, I suddenly thought, oh, hang on a second, is my brain just doing something different? That's why I do think it's important for there to be multiple books or multiple approaches out there, because I don't think anyone's one method. I, I have yet to meet a teacher in the UK who's <laughs> Well, this is method. it. I, I, and I would say I'm more someone who's who's evolved and hopefully still evolving, because I think if if you stop, oh. then then you die. Um but I, I yes, I think I've become more and more traditional in my methodologies. And certainly as a tutor, which is what I do now, private tutor rather than classroom teaching, it's so often I discover that there's just structural gaps missing in a child's knowledge. And once I plug those, then it seems to me that the problem is solved. Um, and I think th- there is so much that's wonderful about the CLC. Um, which is why I used it as the backdrop to my teaching throughout my 21 years in teaching. I never, I never ditched it, although I was tempted. <laughs> but there's so much that's wonderful about it. I'm interested in what you think its magic is, what why it is that's endured so successfully. Because obviously there's quite a lot of detractors, oh, and yeah. yet it has endured. I wonder if if you have an instinct for mm-hmm. why. It's a really interesting question because when I came into this role I wasn't a massive CLC fan again sorry to everyone who's now throwing things at whatever they're listening to this podcast on I wasn't a massive CLC fan I got hired initially because um there was a crisis and the university wasn't sure CSCP would survive it and so they, they brought me in essentially to kind of go top to bottom and I asked myself that question from the outside I looked at it, I was like what what is doing this what why is there this fascination and I think the conclusion I've come to is a a few different ones one of them is the fact that because it's been there so long 
when uh, new courses started coming out recently, the CLC was being referred to as the traditional method. It was the radical I know. kid on the block, in fact, wasn't it? Yeah. I know. If you cut, I, I told when you tell Pat's story that the CLC is now considered to be the traditional method, you can almost see like a blood vessel go. Fascinating. So for starters, the CLC has become the orthodoxy. Mm. And that's really interesting in and of itself. Largely because actually there's never been a full acceptance of its methods. It might have become huge, but its methods have never stopped being pushed back against. Not always an accurate portrayal of its methods, I have to say. The amount of people on social media who will rant at me about Form A and Form B, and I'm like, that literally hasn't been there since the second edition. We're currently writing the fifth. I don't even know what you're talking about. That's Did so you? Old. No, oh, no. Okay, so if I take you back on a little jaunt through the selfie... <laughs> In the earliest editions, because they were trying to reduce the amount of alienating grammatical language. So they essentially, rather than giving you, this is where I try to remember what they used Form A and Form B for. I think it was for cases, although there's, again, there'll be people screaming at me that I don't know my CLC history. But <laughs> I think it was for cases. Um, okay. I think it's for nominative and accusative. Right. So rather yeah. than calling them nominative and accusative, they called that because they were like, well, that's a long word putting a barrier to learning. Actually, if you just call them Form A and Form B, Form A does this job, Form B does that job, moving on with our lives. The, the wording is a lot less scary. It's, it's actually quite a sensible and logical conclusion. The thing that was kind of missed is the fact that you're not alienating the students, possibly, but you're now alienating the teachers. Because <laughs> the teachers are now looking at that going, what? What is this? Yeah. What is this? You know, and the moment you've done that to a teacher you've lost them. And also, you can't introduce a different way of referring to things within a massive ecosystem of people using different terms. It doesn't work. You know, mm. if you could switch the entirety of global classics to referring to form A and form B, rather than the nominative and the accusative, you might get somewhere. But the reason we do it is it's a global label. Mm. And the moment you take that global label away, actually, you're kind of almost recreating a barrier further down the road. Yes, and I think that would be my argument, that you're actually impoverishing those learners. Exactly. Whereas, not... of course, the, the real pedagogical solution is you drip-feed that terminology very gradually. You focus entirely yeah. on subject, object. Have you heard of that through literacy? Oh, yes, you have. Okay, exactly. subject, object. Subject's called the nominative, by the way, but don't worry about that. And, and gradually, 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 they do get used to the words, and then it becomes second nature. But, exactly. but it does take a long time. You can't just hurl those words at a year seven student and expect yeah. them to grasp them and move on. It doesn't work like that. Exactly. But you say that like it's self-evident. But when you mm. see so many, often new teachers, I have to admit, I think. Yeah, I mean, it took me years to, to learn. This, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is the thing. And also, if you look at old textbooks, they do that. Mm. You know, they, they literally will just open, they practically open with, with just a list of them. Yes, yes. What and everybody wrong is reading that and not being terrified. Yes, it is. Um, it is tough. Yeah. So I think that is, I think, sorry, I think the, C, the CLC, so back to your question about why it's endured. I think it learned to strike compromises. Mm. Um, it tried to be really radical with this form A and form B. And then basically all the teachers just sort of came back and said, what is this? <laughs> um, and so it got removed. Um, but equally, it's stuck to its guns on things where it it really mattered. And it's also tried, it's so tightly engineered. 
So I think that tight engineering, even though when you're using it, people don't realise what's going on under the hood. I was always one of those people who just looked at the CLC and thought, why is it in this order? This is a silly order. Mm. Why is that there? And then Pat Story, very, when I first took over as director, uh, Pat Story is still very much involved in the project's life. It's a little bit like being someone to see the headmistress when I get an email saying, Caroline, can you come for a coffee? Um, <laughs> what have I done and, now? <laughs> yeah, there is an element of, oh, God. She she basically, I said this to her, I said, I, I don't understand why the, why the language is in this order. And she just sort of looked at me and she told me something that actually made the CLC make sense to me. And it's the biggest piece of information for getting other people to accept the CLC, which is that the CLC does its language in the order that makes sense to an English speaker, not a Latin speaker. The original linguistic scheme was done by a professor of linguistics at Cambridge, uh, John Wilkins, Wilkins or Wilkins. And essentially he mapped from a linguistics perspective what concepts within the Latin language were most easily cognitively accessible to an English speaker. And those were foregrounded in the book. So the idea being that you're introducing the language in an order that is easily accessible to an English speaker. So that by the time they get to the more complex concepts, which they're going to struggle with slightly more, they've already got a framework of the language. So they're slotting complex concepts into an existing strong framework. So that's why the cases are so spread out, for example. Mm -hmm. You couldn't teach language without being able to do subject and object. So the nominative and the accusative are, are a no brainer. The reason the cases are not explicitly taught all at the same time is because we do not speak an inflected language. So bashing people with all of the cases at the same time, as a lot of traditional courses did, is actually a massive cognitive overload because actually you're giving them the almost the, one of the most alien bits of the language and just giving to them all at the same time and not letting them see it work in context, not letting them get used to it, not not easing them into more familiar language forms so that they, they can get their heads into it. This is a choice for me. That is, so that's part of the magic. It's the fact that somebody sat down and really tightly worked out that linguistics scheme. Everything is in a place that somebody thought was the most sensible for a thousand and one reasons. And on the whole, it gets it roughly right. There will always be things that people would have preferred we moved. And we have moved the ablative. Have you? Interesting. Yeah. Yes, we have moved yeah. the ablative. Not because necessarily we disagree strongly with the original premise as to why it was where it was but because we're back to lose the teachers. Mm -hmm. So basically, if everyone is saying to us, we want to teach the ablative earlier, we can either dig our heels in or we can actually compromise on where the ablative goes. So it's at the end of book one, but that's still er much earlier than it used to be. Yeah, it was end of book three, wasn't it? <laughs> I seem to remember, yeah. Um, I, mean, uh, yeah. I just... I just that's interesting though that, that that it was the teacher i suppose if you ask teachers what they want that's certainly what i would have said um in my solution was i just taught taught them the ablative uh but after prepositions i i, I just said you know this has other uses as well but there's this special case called the ablative because they see it from the first story you know caecilius est in horto and the brighter kids ask about that they'll say why isn't it hortus or hortum good question yeah, but that is exactly, you know, this is possibly why you use the CLC for so much of your career, because you seem to, that is what I, you know, we, we would expect people to do. You know, the reason we don't 
teach it explicitly is because those students for whom they're struggling enough to get their heads around subject and object, throwing in the ablative as well, you know, you, those those lower end students, they don't need that extra cognitive load. The, the, the upper end are the ones who are more confident, who are asking you those questions. Tell them. The CLC has always, and if you look at the earliest teacher guides, it's always said, if students ask, answer them. Yes, that it certainly does. Yes, yeah, that's true. And it, hmm. the book's more about, you know, it seeds things so much. By the time you see it in an, about the language, your students have seen it repeatedly in the books. So the about the languages almost become a consolidation exercise. The CLC does need the teacher to be really thinking about how they want to draw the grammar and the language points out with their students. The book won't do it for them. No. But that's very deliberate because the book is designed to be incredibly individualised. You know, the, the whole premise of the book is for each student to develop their personal understanding of how the language works. People mm. interpret that as you don't give them any rules or you you miss out all the grammar. No, it just means that you as the teacher decide how you want to best scaffold that discussion of language for the students who are in front of you in terms of the timing and in terms of your wording and the terms of how you consolidate it. So, again, in terms of why the book is endured, I think because it can be used in so many different ways, in so many different contexts, and you can, it's very easy to differentiate with. The kids who are struggling more can at least access the storyline. The kids who are really confident and who have picked up the language point that you've just taught them are really happy with it. Their brains can be working on something that's unfamiliar. In my experience, it's actually the other way around, that what happens with students who are struggling with CLC and, dare we mention, similar courses because uh, there are some <clears throat> oh, there are. <laughs> I find that they can't access the stories without an enormous amount of scaffolded support mainly vocabulary because if we're going to talk about cognitive overload one of my biggest beefs with reading courses is the way they hurl a vast amount of vocabulary at students so new vocabulary in a passage stuff they've never seen before or they might have seen once I just ended up giving them all the vocabulary on screen that they needed for each section because otherwise they can't do it if you have to look up every single word in the back of the book that is the worst thing for cognitive overload you look it up you go back to what you're doing then you've forgotten then you've got to look it up again uh, and and that's the main problem do you, do you not see that was I getting it wrong in my classroom what was I getting no wrong? I think there's no teaching method that doesn't have a, a weakness essentially teaching is hard i think this is a weakness with right method. uh well for me i'm sure again there are really method proponents who are screaming unfortunately in order to build a an engaging narrative you need to have varied words that is the nature of the beast the team have gone through and have tried to reduce the amount of Oh, I can't remember what they, uh, one of the authors came out with sort of referring to it as the, the the CLC words, which are the words which kind of only occur in the CLC. What, like polyspaston? <laughs> yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a classic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So we have, tr so we've tried to tie it more to things like the Dickinson 1000. When you speak to people, so for example, in, in the US, comprehensible input is a big kind of trend in teaching. 
And one thing that they say, exactly as you're describing, is they they say shelter vocabulary. So the vocabulary, about 93% of the vocabulary, I think is the number, has to be familiar. Yes. Um, and then you can play with the grammatical forms. Absolutely. And this is a really interesting thing because, yes, it probably makes the reading kind of more, better comments, comprehensible. However, the storylines aren't exactly exciting. No, um, and this is the decision you have to make, isn't yeah, it? That yes, there uh-huh. will there will by nature be repetition. That's that's what it's like when you're 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 yeah. using vocabulary that's familiar. For me, that's the problem, is the mm. fact that exactly say so, there is a balance to be struck. And I think the CLC is on the side of let's try and create really engaging stories. But that yes, you're completely right, means that the vocabulary is varied. It does mean that it does engage kids. You know, again. Let's be honest, I've gone for the driest bits as to why it's been so successful for so long. The driest bits being, oh, the language is presented in a really nice way. No, no, no. Let's be honest. It's the dog. It's the dog. <laughs> and can you explain to me why do they love Kai Kilius so much? He's a middle-aged white banker, but they just love him. I know. <laughs> I, 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 Go I figure. This, I would completely, I, I, so strange. And But they do. They just do. They just do. They just love him. That is something that I I can't explain. And it's like <laughs> the genius of the original authors. Yeah. You know, they chose Pompeii very deliberately. Book one, I think, is so wonderful. It's enchanting. And that's why I couldn't leave it entirely behind. Do you think, as some of us do, that it loses its way as we progress into book two and beyond? <laughs> I'm hoping that people really enjoy what we've done to the later books. Uh, book two comes out in January. Are you uh, going to get rid of Bellimachus and the bear? and Or is that all um, staying? I mean, to be fair, the Bellimachus and the bear, I think, is staying, purely because, to quote my to quote one of my authors, that scene is a work of literary genius. Um, who doesn't want to assassinate somebody using a bear? Um, <laughs> however, from my point of view, I will say, yes, we, we identified an awful lot of issues. Annoyingly, four and five have got really, really engaging, rich things in them. Yeah, Nobody gets there. we've all given up by then. Two and three, they didn't used to quite gel for a lot of people. No. And it doesn't help that, um, you know, there's this weird peak at the beginning of book two where suddenly all the stories got much longer. And what's really interesting is it peaks. It doesn't go up and then stay there. It goes up and then it drops again. Mm, yes, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Oh, it does. Yeah, it yeah. does. And so we've tried to level that out. Okay. But also we've tried to actually go through and create more meaningful engagement. So, for example, one of the thing, the problems with the ending of book two is teachers are really sad about the death of Barbilus because they see him die every year. And every year they know it's coming and they kind of engage because they're building engagement. The kids don't care. It's vaguely funny that he dies by hippo, you know? Yeah. Um, There's not He's not been built enough as a character. Yeah. Yeah. So what we've done is we've pulled him forwards. Okay. So he's now in book one. So the amicus mm. in stage two is Barbilus. Oh, excellent. And then uh, Julius, who was in stage 12, yeah. uh, who is this random person that we meet, who we never meet again. Yes. Indeed. Who's literally just there to just be in a volcano. Yeah. Um, that's now Barbilus. Ah. And so essentially there's this whole meta narrative now that Barbilus essentially runs away from Pompeii and leaves his mate Caecilius to die in a fiery inferno. And that's why Quintus 
and um, spoiler alert, Lucia, she also survives, uh, Kykalus' daughter, are in Alexandria. Because essentially, um, Barbilus is almost like survivor's guilt. Um, so yes. Barbilus has been a presence in these in these kids' lives anyway. They're now orphaned and don't really want to stay in Italy, we're imagining, because trauma. So he offers them a home with him in Alexandria, which does mean we've now devastated them twice because that's two father figures that we've killed off the two books but that's good that's uh, good pathos yep. yeah we're aiming for the virgil thing you know we're just yeah. killing off the father figures as we go yeah um so that we're hoping will make that a lot more engaging and it also means that you have now in book two you have the reveal that quintus has survived in say 16 yes mm-hmm. clemens in there as well and then in 17 we learn that barbillus is alive and lucia is alive and so we've Though that kind of pulls through a bit more. That it. sounds like a massive improvement. The it, we're, in terms of the narrative, what I also realised, I think one of the re- reasons I felt that their interest plummeted during book two, I did eventually basically ditch book two um, and did a, my own rewrite basically. Um, but what I decided is that the students actually didn't care enough about Quintus, that he's not f- at the forefront enough in book one. So I made up a whole load of extra stuff about. Quintus, do you want to hear my narrative? So Go Quintus, Quintus, <clears throat> sorry if this is a shock to any old students of mine that realised this was actually not official CLC. Um, <laughs> Quintus falls in love with Melissa <gasps> and they elope, but that coincides with the eruption of the volcano and they get separated, Creusa style. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, nice. oh, yes. And so Quintus doesn't know what's happened to Melissa because um, you know, in stage eleven, I was thought, "Where's Quintus? Shouldn't he might be Caecilius's side?" You know, with the campaign and everything. So I always make a big deal of it. So where, hmm, what's Quintus up to? Then I drop in the story about Melissa. So they're really kind of excited about Quintus in this love story throughout stages eleven and twelve, and then they're ready for him to be the hero. Huh? in book two because what I felt was they just never got over the loss of Kykelius that was the problem they can't get past it oh and I rescued the dog as well because they couldn't get past that either <laughs> so he survives and he goes off with Quintus and uh, and Clemens on their travels so yeah I'm afraid I really really mucked about with it so I really like the fact you rescued <laughs> the dog as well um I just thought do you know what? I'm going to rescue the dog. Oh, this is the thing. So uh, Lisa Hay on my team is a huge CLC fan. You know, I cannot stress enough how much she she loves these books. Aww. You know, she is. She's a wonderful custodian of the stories. I think she describes Quintus as having a kind of what comparison she used. So I think I'm accidentally borrowing this one from J.K. Rowling. But she basically Quintus has the emotional depth of a teaspoon. Yeah, you know, and oh, that that was it. Lisa came out with as well. Nobody in the CLC has emotions ever. Mm, it's true, as she said. The reason for that in book one is because we haven't got the vocabulary. Yes, you cannot really create in a world when you've just got no vocabulary. We try to do it a bit better now, but yes, as you say, nobody cared about Quintus. Mm. He was the least interesting character. Mm. I mean, if you think about book one, he literally does nothing. Yeah, he's drinking in the dining room. He hits a dog. He hits a dog. I'd cut that bit out as well because the students did not react well to that bit in my experience. Even if you try and make the dog sound really scary and horrible, they're still like, yeah, but Missy hit the dog. (laughs) 
they can't get past it. I know. <laughs> we've had other te- we've had teachers raise this as well. And don't wrong. I'm a massive animal lover. I do not condone any kind of animal cruelty. However, any if you're being cruelty. savaged by a stray dog, exactly. I can't work out how else you get a dog that's attacking, like a quite a large dog as well. When you look at those illustrations, we're not yes. a flower. No, um, they couldn't. They but they couldn't get past it. So I, I could, yeah. yeah. So what we've tried to do is we've tried to give a little bit more depth. I don't know how much we've managed it. We've done it so much in book one. The thing with book one's narrative is we kind of didn't want to move it too much because mm. it's the work of literary genius. It is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we did want to introduce Lucia, who's the daughter. Mm-hmm. We do have her and Quintus. And also we have these talking heads in the cultural background sections where we, we've put some of the historical material into the characters voices just to split things up a little bit and also it enabled us to try and encourage students to really connect those stories with the background this this information is connected to these characters this is the characters live live reality yeah so we tried to get a bit more personality into those as well so for example we've tried to create a more siblingy relationship for quintus i think lukey is really helpful for that actually Rather than Marcus and Quartus in stage 11, you have Lucia and Quintus. I'd heard that at that switch, yeah, and I thought that was a very good idea. Because again, who needs Marcus and Quartus? We really don't need them, you know. Exactly. You know, so we've made it <laughs> Lucia and uh, Quintus having a bit of a, a disagreement. We've actually changed it up a bit more in terms of how the story flows as well. But hmm. yeah, essentially that that disagreement. And what's really interesting to me, especially as a woman, is the amount of people, and including women, who have pushed back and gone, well, Lucia wouldn't have had an, had an opinion. Of course she would. Yeah. We have Pompeian graffiti that is women mm-hmm. putting up notices, election mm-hmm. notices. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, we know we know they had opinions. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating to me. And it's not, and it's, you know, one of the most controversial things we've done apparently in book one is make the painter a woman. The amount of people who are like, well, do you have any evidence for this? Yes. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Two passages of Pliny and some paintings from Pompeii. Next question. It's 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 baffling to me, mm. but it also speaks to that massive amount of assumption that the book's been perpetuating. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, people have learnt from the Cambridge Latin course, and what they've learnt is the 1970s understanding yeah. of the Roman world. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> you know, Barbilus um, being uh, a man of colour. Well, the original Barbilus is based on a, char- a historical character. We've changed loads of things, but the original authors based him on um, a court astronomer who his heritage, he was a Roman citizen living in Alexandria, but his heritage is Greco-Syrian. And the chances of a, a Roman living in Alexandria with Greco-Syrian heritage being Caucasian or white, it, really? Mm. That's highly unlikely. And then when you look at Pompeii, well, Pompeii is on a trade route that connects vast swathes of the Roman Empire. The idea that everyone would look like modern day Italians is also mad, unless it was a really rubbish trade port. Mm. If you haven't got people who look <laughs> different, your trade port's rubbish. The Roman Empire encompasses out into sort of West Asia and North Africa. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> it's mad. I'm going to say I think we're the only textbook to do this. Obviously, authors and editors of other textbooks, please feel free to correct me. Please do. (laughs) I'd be delighted to hear we're not the only ones who do this. We have sensitivity readers. 
I have said very openly, uh, one of our biggest kind of flaws in some ways of, with rewriting this is my entire team is white. And so we have sensitivity readers. We have um, Jazz Elmer, who is of mixed heritage. Uh, she's in the UK. And we have Priya Jackson, who is a young black woman um, in the US. And they have been absolutely fantastic. They are so interesting. And actually, they offer, they're not just commenting on issues of race and ethnicity and culture. They, they, they're both very accomplished classicists um, with a real interest in how we depict the ancient world to younger people. They've both come through the system. Priya actually learned with the CLC. Mm. And so they come up with some of the insights they come out with, they really highlight where we've missed something. Mm. You know, and it, it Which you be... always will. It's, it's absolutely yeah. inevitable. All of us you know, we'll miss things from whatever yeah. background we come from. Exactly. And so it's just been so wonderful to be able to pass up the book through those external eyes. I, we try to cross-check everything. So everything goes out to externals, everything mm. eyes on it. Barbilus is um, a man of colour and we reflect his heritage more in book two. But we try to do it in very practical terms, but also because it's important to his character in book two. He's talking about the different languages he speaks and he references his history. In book one, he's just Caecilius's friend. He's Caecilius's friend, the merchant. Nobody needs to comment on him beyond that because he's just a Roman. You know, it's balancing those things out, which I think is really, really important. Oh, yes, this has reminded me. What now we're into um, being woke? Have you got rid of the dwarves? <laughs> we haven't actually got the bit of the dwarves. Yes, the dwarf. <laughs> it's one of those things, isn't it? Were the Romans awful? Yes. Yeah, they were. It's yes, true. They, were, they were. They were awful. Wrote that awful Telegraph article that basically, essentially they were like, well, well, people might be upset with things. So they're changing it. So it's like, well, not to take it out. You know, we're not going to suddenly pretend the Romans didn't enslave people or mm. didn't do dreadful things. Basically, the problem often lies in the model sentences. Model mm. sentences are not designed to be highly contextualised. So having enslaved people with dwarfism who are commodified by the romans that that happened and presenting that isn't the problem but it was the just problem. the way it's just dropped in, exactly the problem <laughs> is there some dwarves in. juggling <laughs> yeah exactly the problem okay. is dropping it in from a height not addressing <laughs> it at all and wandering off so yes the dwarves are the model sentences coming out of nowhere and being really inappropriately presented in that manner yes they they will go you heard it here first well having been relatively uninterested to date i now can't wait to get my hands on a copy of book one and book two Huge thanks to Caroline Bristow, director of the CSCP, for being such a wonderful first guest on season two of the Latin Tutor podcast. Do join me again as I have plenty more guests to come. If you'd like to be a guest on the Latin Tutor podcast, then get in touch as I'm always looking for new perspectives. Plus, maybe I can steal your resources.